Today we will be continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. But in connection with that, we'll be reading the related account of the baptism of Jesus, which we find in Mark 1. Mark 1, the verses 9 to 11. And you'll be able to find that on page 1151 of your pew Bible. John has been preaching, declaring that there is one who, will, who is coming. He's been uh, baptizing people at the Jordan River. And we read in our passage here, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's now move forward to Luke chapter 3. We find that one gospel further. Luke chapter 3, and we'll be reading the verses 21 to 38. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. And here we get the genealogy of Jesus Christ through the entirety of the human race. And it ends off in verse 38 with the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, up to this point in our series, we've been seeing that the physician Luke, the author of our gospel, has been doing the work of an historian. He's been very faithfully going to the sources and building on them, doing research around them to fill in important details and more. But what we see here today is interesting. Mark is, quite likely, one of Luke's sources the Gospel of Mark. The scholars are fairly certain of that, considering the amount of overlap that we have, not just in episodes in the life of Jesus, but also in the fact that in many places they use the exact same wording. But today's passage is a bit of a departure from Mark, from what the other Gospel writers do when it comes to what they see with regards to Mark. Not only does Luke not add much to what Mark writes with other sources, in some cases he actually shortens it a bit. And then he adds a genealogy at the end of it, a list of names creating a break where Mark goes straight from the baptism of Jesus to his temptation in the desert. Now we know that God didn't inspire Luke 
to take a different perspective for no reason. As we read at the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1, Luke's intention was to write an orderly account to give to his patron Theophilus a reasoned understanding of what had come to pass. So that brings us to the question, why did Luke write what he did? What was his intention in writing this different perspective on this account? Did he not consider the baptism of Jesus as important as, say, Matthew did? Today we'll look at all of that and more under the following theme and points. Come to the river to see the baptism of God's Son. And we'll see first, preparing the way, second, the Son of Man, and third, the baptism of the Son. If you were here last week, you may remember how we spoke of the ministry of John. He was the prophet that Isaiah spoke about, declaring in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. The people who were walking in darkness, as the Gospel of John later describes it, the people who were walking in darkness have become aware of their sin and their darkness. They've become aware that they are in thick shrouds of darkness. And when you become aware of the darkness in which you walk, oh, how great that darkness is truly is. That was the purpose of the baptism of John. It was to make the people aware of how great their darkness was, to bring them to repentance. John's baptism wasn't a baptism of salvation. It was a baptism to bring the people down to their knees. His was a proclamation of sin. His was a declaration of how great Their darkness was. That was the purpose of the baptism of John, to make them aware. It's a gloom into which it seems no shadow can pierce. The darkness of their own hearts made the people quail, and it made them ask in response to John's proclamation, what can we do? John proclaimed to them the way that they could show repentance, He proclaimed to them the way in which they could show their sorrow over their sin. But all he could do was teach the people to hate their own sin and to flee from it, to expose it to them to their own eyes. All he could do was teach the people to run from that darkness, that thick darkness, that gloom that penetrated them through and through. He bore witness to the light, the light that was coming, but he could not bring them that light himself because he himself was not the light. And so what hope could they have from him? They were a people walking in darkness who by the power of the Holy Spirit were only now becoming really truly aware of it. They were only now able to realize the sin in which they were found. They could only now, by the power of that same Spirit, prepare their hearts. In the wasteland of their souls, in the drought of the desert that was their lives, all they could do was make straight a highway for their God. But they remained in darkness. But after darkness comes the light. In the stillness of 
their night, a voice sounded. Their empty void that was within them, that was begging to be filled, that was crying out for salvation, received a response. In the middle of that crush of crowd that was surrounding the Jordan River, one man stepped forward. He walked into the water. Matthew points out to us that John the Baptist cried to him, Lord, I should not be baptized by you. I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. Baptize me. And yet he softly but firmly commanded John to baptize him. And on the banks of the Jordan River where the people had come to realize the darkness, where they had come to recognize their sin and desire to flee from it in terror because it grieved their God and Master in heaven, the heavens split open and a voice thundered out, This is my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son. And you I am well pleased. Beloved, have you come to the river? Week after week, month after month, the same gospel message is preached. But if you have not come to the river, it will fall on empty ears. If you have not come to the river, it will not be any more to you than just an empty philosophy, than an idea to tickle your, to tickle your fancy. Have you come to understand that you share in a fallen condition with everyone around you? That you are no better than anyone around you? Have you come to the river? Because if you have not come to the river, these words will fall on a pathway to be trampled by men. These words will fall among thorns to be choked out. They'll fall on rocks to spring up for a time and then wither away. If you have not come to the river, you'll not see the sweetness of the gospel. You'll not savor the beauty of what's about to take place in our passage. You'll not understand how God works for the salvation of your soul. You see, it's very deliberate that Luke writes what he writes. It's very deliberate how he chose the words he did to describe the events that took place when John the Baptist bowed down to the ministry of Jesus Christ, when he surrendered to it. But you will not understand if you have not come to the river. As the Spirit proclaims in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see the power of God at work on the banks of the Jordan River in our passage today? There are many of you today who have recognized this. Who feel a darkness in your soul when you hear God's word proclaimed. And you feel a piercing sorrow. This sorrow, for some of you, embraces everything that you see. When you look out to creation, the flowers and the sunshine that you so loved have been long gone. The birds in the trees, they huddle and they shy away. And all you see is the gray days of Owen Sound. The grim late winter months of Gray County. 
The snow, which was so white and fresh in December, now feels like it's lost its color. And the world is a kaleidoscope of shades of gray. After so many melancholy months, for some there's only darkness, gloom, and sorrow. In Matthew 6, verse 22 to 23, we read, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Some of you know this darkness, and you know it personally. You've come to know it intimately. It can be easy during these moments to look back on your sin. It can be easy to look back on the mistakes you have made and to dwell on them. When you feel this darkness overwhelm you, when you feel the dreariness of these gray months drag you down, you hate it. But saint, do you not realize that this too is necessary? That this awareness of darkness is a gift of God. He is bringing you down to the river to see your darkness, to understand it. And He is bringing you to the river to reveal to you the light. Isaiah 50 verse 10, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. Don't dwell on your sin and wallow in your sorrow. When you feel this darkness, recognize its purpose and come to the river. Come to see the light and the Son of Man revealed to you. What's being described in our passage here is a man, John the Baptist, who's proclaiming the darkness and taking off the blinders of the souls of people. We see one who's bearing witness to the light that is coming. The law convicted them. Their baptism by John was a watery grave for them. It was a confession that just as everyone else had died by water in the days of Noah, just as the Egyptians had died by water in the crossing of the Red Sea, they too deserved to die. It was the conviction that in the days of Noah, like in the days of Noah when the world perished in the flood, Only the undeserved mercy of God could bear them through. And that light was coming. That light was coming in the form of one who was God and fully man. In our sermon series in Luke so far, we've seen the birth of Christ. And we've also come to know the reason for it. As the Apostle Paul would later write in Galatians 4, verse 4 to 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law, that we might receive adoption as sons. He was born as a man and born under law. Those are important points that we'll get around to in a moment. But for now, I want you to take a look at how Jesus comes to the foreground in this episode. And we know from the other Gospels that a lot more was going 
on when Jesus came forward to be baptized. That while Jesus was coming to the river to be baptized, he spoke to John as well. But what we may not have realized is how differently Luke speaks of Jesus coming to the Jordan River as compared to the other Gospels. We read in Mark how Jesus' coming to the water was set apart from the rest of the baptisms. In those days, this happened. We find something similar in Matthew. It becomes a new episode. But Luke doesn't make Jesus coming to the foreground something special. He just throws him into the mix with everyone else. We read in verse 21, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. Jesus is described as just one more baptism. So why would Luke do that? Luke is highlighting Jesus' position as the one who is born of woman and born under law. He's highlighting how he's one more, he is fully man, and he's one more man who's coming out of the press of humanity that's surrounding the river there. As he shared in our human nature and shared in our flesh, walked among mankind in a physical body, so he too was bound under law. He willingly placed himself under law as part of his humbling when he came to earth. Now, don't be mistaken. This is not to say that his was a baptism to repent from sins. Jesus was born holy and he lived a life of perfection. We read in Hebrews 4 verse, 4, verse 15 that he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet in Romans 8 verse 3, we read that he was sent to earth in the likeness of man, that that sin might be condemned in the flesh. Jesus was showing that he was truly part of the human race when he came down to the river. He was showing the world that the human race was fully condemnable and that the wrath of God could rest on him as a member of the human race. This is important to recognize because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which sinned should pay for sin. We read of the necessity of Christ sharing in our human nature in Hebrews 2 verse 14. It was the consequence of His sharing our human nature that meant that we are set free. It was necessary for Him to be true man for this to happen. It was necessary for him to present himself to the world in coming under the baptism of John that he too was born of woman. He too was under law. That is what Luke is highlighting by describing Jesus as just one more person in the crowd who was to be baptized. And he highlights it even more strongly through the genealogy, which immediately follows. I don't know if you noticed that, but this genealogy is quite radically different from the one that you find in Matthew. The one in Matthew is meant to highlight the descent of Jesus from the royal line. It traces a direct line of royal succession through the kings of Israel to Jesus. And Matthew uses a pattern which 
specifically Hebrew readers would recognize and appreciate to highlight that fact. Most especially in the use of the number 14 in the Matthew genealogy. But we won't get into that for now. We're just looking at the one that's in Luke. Some Bible translations suggest that this is perhaps the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. But is that correct? After all, you get Joseph named right from the start, and Mary's name is nowhere to be found. Others suggest that this is simply a mistake, and I believe that to be downright wrong, aside from this being the infallible and inspired Word of God. Luke's much too careful of a scholar for that. He's done his research, and he's not just pulling these names out of the air. Genealogies were lists that were carefully looked after and recorded by the Jews. More than that, every Jew who knew Jesus, his father and his grandfather at this time, would have pointed out the problems with these Gospels. At this point, you may be thinking, what then? Did Joseph have two fathers or something? Our options are getting limited. The answer to that is actually quite probably yes. This was a more common practice in the ancient world. There are other explanations for this, but this is the one that in the studies that I've been going through uh, was the most convincing. This was the most common practice in the ancient world. If a man had only one daughter and was not going to have any more children, he would occasionally legally adopt the husband of his daughter in order to carry on the family name and inheritance. So if Mary was her father's heiress, if she was the only daughter and there were no sons, then her father would legally adopt her husband as his son. And this happened more commonly. Matthew gives Jesus' ancestry by birth according to the royal line, while Luke gives us Jesus' ancestry by adoption. While Matthew's ancestry is regal and messianic, Luke's ancestry is meant to highlight Christ's position as the legal son of Joseph and then tie him to the fate of the human race. We see it goes through all of history. It spans through all of history, right back to Adam. All of humanity's hopes and fears are bound up in him. And that's why he is mentioned as one more man being baptized. That's why his line is traced back through the generations to our first father, Adam, created by God. John was proclaiming that mankind was in darkness. But he was also proclaiming the coming light. And here the light was put on display for all to see. Jesus, a man from the crowd. Jesus sharing in their common condition of humanity. And Jesus, the one who was capable of bearing the curse that was theirs. And with this one moment, we see a new phase in new, begin in New Testament history. It's a phase that shifts from one ministry to another. John must decrease while Jesus will increase. 
as Jesus shared in human nature but not in their sin, did this mean that his baptism was meaningless? That John's baptism of repentance did nothing for him? Well, we've already established that it shows that he is under law just as the rest of the human race. And if Jesus had just gone his own way after this, we could possibly draw the conclusion that that's all there was to it. But that's not what happened. We read in verse 22 of Luke's third chapter, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. John's baptism became for Jesus an unveiling. Our Christ was born of woman. Our Lord, who was fully man and full, who was born under law, was now publicly confirmed as God's favored Son. And he was publicly unveiled so that he could begin his ministry. And the sign of this was by an anointing by the Holy Spirit and a voice that thundered down from heaven. Why was this anointing necessary? Well, there are three reasons for this. First, did you notice how the Holy Spirit revealed himself? He revealed himself in the form of a dove. Not as a dove. It wasn't just some bird that happened to fly up and land on Jesus' shoulder, which people interpreted in a special way. No, it was the Spirit descending in the form of a dove. Now, why didn't he appear in the form of a tongue of fire dancing over Jesus' head? That's what he did at Pentecost. Why the difference? Here, the people of God were promised the gospel of peace. Do you remember what happened after the terror of the flood that Noah faced? He released a dove who first came back to him bearing an olive leaf, after which it was set free to roam the earth. And so for many Jews, the dove became a symbol of God's peace with man. After God bore him through the flood, which should have destroyed him, it became a much stronger symbol of God's mercy. After God commanded it, and after God commanded it to be used in many sacrifices, this was even more strongly highlighted, symbolizing the wrath which should have been poured out on man, but the peace which God granted man instead. The dove was a symbol of that peace standing on the banks and standing in the water of the Jordan River, having heard the proclamation of God's wrath and man's need to repent, the crowd could now see that symbol of God's peace, of reconciliation coming down on Jesus Christ. The veil had been lifted, and now God has fully revealed His light to the world. In the second place, this anointing was meant to draw the minds of everyone who was there back to the Bible. As they watched with awe what was taking place, their minds, as Jews, would have immediately gone back to the prophets. Specifically, the book of Isaiah, the first verse of the 61st chapter. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus had now come from private to public life. And to confirm him in the eyes of all who were there that day, the Lord anointed him 
to preach good tidings to all who heard the gospel, confessed their great need to the Lord, repented of their sin, and put their trust in Him for their salvation. Third, this anointing was meant to be a personal comfort and confirmation to Jesus Christ as well. Being fully God and fully man, he knew his task in the world. But he needed the comfort and assurance that his heavenly Father could bring, just as much as we here on earth need this comfort, encouragement, and confirmation of our earthly fathers. He shared in our human nature in these ways as well. And God gives him this. And that's emphasized by the slight difference you find in the words of our passage. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. In the Gospel of Matthew we read that the crowd heard God say, This is my beloved son. For everybody else God was proclaiming, This is the son whom I have chosen. But here, God in speaking to his very own son has a message for Jesus. While everyone else hears God's declaration of love for Jesus Christ as an individual, Jesus hears God's declaration of love for him personally. In Christ's ears, it's not just an abstract thing. It's real. And it's for him. Today we look back on the beginning of Christ's ministry, but we also look ahead to the end. And we find his ministry bracketed by this. Just as the Spirit descended from heaven with a declaration of peace for us and love for the Son of God, so too the Son of God ascended into heaven with that declaration of peace, with a blessing and words of love rolling off of his lips as he ascended into heaven. The darkness has been pierced by the light. And the world after the anointing of Jesus Christ, will never be the same again. Beloved, Christ pleased God by His perfect life. And He pleased Him even more by the payment on the cross for our sin. It was of Jesus that God said, This is my beloved Son. So how does this make us approach. When we see, for example, the waters of baptism, how do you approach this sacrament? This afternoon we're going to be having the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. How do you approach the Lord's Supper? Do you come to be made aware of your sin? Do you repent and turn from your sin with a sincere heart? Do you come down to the river to be made aware of your darkness? And do you come down to your river to see the light? If you do, take courage, because this light is for you. No longer will you just hear the words, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven confirmed that in Christ you will hear, You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Come to the river to see your sin. Come to the river to see your Christ. Come and know that in Him and in Him alone, everything is accomplished on your behalf. Everything is finished. And you have peace with God. Amen.